Lord, again, we ask for your help. We ask, Lord, that you teach us, that you shape us, that you guide us, and Lord, that you speak through your servant today. Lord, may our time in your word be the, the fruit, Lord, uh, of change, of conviction, of uh, a fresh awareness of your majesty and an understanding, Lord, of the beauty of your gospel. We ask this now in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. And thank you, Lauren, for reading that, that passage for us. Um, for those of you who may be visiting with us, we, we are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we've already gone through 1 Samuel, God choosing a king, uh, a king after his own heart, and that ultimately is David. And the story then of 2 Samuel is that king actually taking control of the kingdom, setting up Jerusalem. Um, and yet in the storyline, David, uh, in his position of authority, abuses that power, um, takes Bathsheba, uh, the, the, the wife of one of his mighty men, and uh, while the men are out in battle, he takes her, commits adultery with her, and then ultimately he, um, he murders um, Uriah, and um, God then comes to him through the prophet Nathan and says, listen, I'm, uh, this, is, this is what you've done, you are the man. David repents, but God says there's still gonna be consequence for you, and that consequence now is being borne out. We have been going through chapter after chapter of the mess and the struggle of that mess of the consequence of sin in the life of God's chosen servant. And that should be a reminder to us that if God can discipline David for his sin, then he certainly is one who will discipline us for our sin. Uh, but at the same time, God is committed to David and his, his steadfast love, his said love, is kind of like this underlying theme throughout all of this. So even in the midst of the suffering that David goes through, um, God is still committed to him as king, and he's committed to his promise. And where we are right now, David has, has fled Jerusalem because his son, Absalom, has usurped the throne. He's come in, he started a rebellion. And David fled with a, an entourage of people uh, from Jerusalem. They found their way to uh, Manah Mahanaim, which is another city on kind of northeast of Jerusalem. And uh, that takes us basically to where we're at. There's going to be a battle that takes place here. And uh, as we've, we've read, um, that, is, that is what actually happens. And so this is where we are in the story. And so this morning, I would like to just begin by just saying that there's always a tension between love and justice. Love on one hand, justice on the other hand, seemingly are not at work together. There are times when we would like love to triumph over justice, especially when we are the ones in trouble with justice. Um, police officer pulls you over because you, you, know, you, you didn't stop uh, completely and you're like, oh, I know I didn't do it completely, but can you be compassionate? You, you want compassion, why? Because you're the one who's, who's the recipient of that. You're not like, oh yeah, give me justice, I deserve it. No, you, you, there's a sense in which, hey, I, I want love to, cover, to, to conquer that justice. But then there are, there are times when it just doesn't seem right that the claims of justice are outweighed by the sympathy of compassion. We can all probably think of, of a criminal case where the judge has handed down what seems to be an incredibly 
lenient sentence for a horrendous crime that has been committed. And we're at a loss to understand how the judge could be so lenient. Um, and two recent cases come to mind. Uh, you may be familiar with the, the Brock Turner case. Uh, it's the case of a, a, uh, a swimmer um, over and a student over at um, Stanford who, who raped a, a young girl um, and um, left her lying unconscious behind a dumpster, uh, went to court, and the judge handed down a sentence of six months. And there was an outcry uh, from pretty much everyone <laughs> about the, the leniency of that judgment. And as I did a little research on it, I found out that he was let out after three months. Okay? And so there's a sense in which, where's justice here? And yet, the, the words of the judge, this is what he said, a prison sentence would have a severe impact on him. I think he will not be a danger to others. And you're just like, but what about her? What about the suffering that she went through? You can read her account and her story and her testimony, and it's, it's pretty rough. And people who were outraged by the judge and the sentencing were saying things like this. Six months for that frat boy, Brock Allen Turner, raping a female student is an insult to women, especially the one in four women that have been raped and were sexually assaulted. Or the extreme leniency and empathy afforded to a convicted rapist, Turner, in the sentencing phase is incomprehensible. And I think that just expresses, I think, what many, if not most people, were thinking at that particular point in time. And yet, um, there is this disparity between justice and compassion. We, we live with this. This is the world in, in which these things happen. Here's another one, more, more recent, right? Dylan Roof. You, you heard the, the news that, that he, uh, he's the one that went into the, the, the church there in, in Charleston and, and uh, killed, I think, nine people. And um, um, he ends up being found guilty, but he said, I'm going to represent myself at the actual sentencing phase. And uh, he, he was given the death penalty. And you're probably saying to yourself, yeah, and he deserves it. Um, there's justice. This is what he did. He committed a crime, and it was a horrible crime. And yet, add all the, the racial component to it, it was just a, just a horrendous crime that just shook our country. And yet, I, I have to ask myself the question, and I'm not, I'm not picking on any particular group of people except for the people that say the death penalty is inhumane. Where is the outcry in this situation from that crowd. Even they are saying, you know what, uh, I actually think this one deserves it. Because there is this tension between love, compassion, mercy, and justice. We feel it, we struggle with it. Now even in the, in, this may be simplistic, but I think there is a sense in which this is true. Even in, in our political world, the opposing political ideologies tend to lean one way or the other. Those who lean to the right tend to hold up justice and the keeping of the law as a higher priority than com being compassionate. Those who tend to lean to the left tend to hold up love, mercy, and compassion as a higher priority than justice and the purity of abiding by the law. And so it's no surprise then when you have two different groups that they're struggling over the same set of facts and they're coming to different conclusions because there's a, there's a lean toward justice, there's a lean toward love, compassion, and mercy, and each of them doesn't understand how each other's thinking. 
or he doesn't agree with it. So this tension comes out in how we view and we talk about criminals. One side views the issue simply by saying he broke the law and deserves to get his just punishment. My compassion is for those who are violated. That's one side, right? While the other side says, and they're, trying to, they're not trying to discredit the law, but they're saying, but there may be some good reasons as to why he acted or behaved in that way that brought about his breaking of the law. And the reality is, guys, both are true. You can go back and say there's a reason why someone behaved that way. But does that mean, then, that they're not responsible for their actions? That's welcome to the world of legal, <laughs> legal USA, right? There's this tension between love and justice. Now let's bring it a little closer to home. This is also a struggle that parents have in raising their kids. When a child breaks the family law, one parent may want to say, he's grounded for life. He's not going to be able to talk on the phone. He's not going to be able to watch TV or even send emails online. He will only be allowed out of his room to eat, to use the bathroom, and, of course, for family devotions. <laughs> that's, that's one side of it, right? Then you have the other side. The other parent is thinking to him or herself, I wonder what brought my son to the place where he would do something like this. Yes, he's guilty, but I don't really want him to do this again. What he needs is a little love and tenderness rather than cold punishment. Mercy is the way forward to get to his heart. So when the parents get together, a World War III argument ensues, and there is division and tension in the marriage. But hear this, both parents care deeply for that child, and both parents want to do what is right as a parent to provide necessary justice, but also to provide an appropriate compassion. And friends, I, can, I just tell you, part, part of the greatest struggle in marriage is not so much marriage, it's parenting. You'll find that a lot of your, a lot of your challenges, a lot of your arguments, a lot of the, the things that rub each other are, are just how we view these two different issues, justice and mercy. There's got to be a coming together, but how does that happen? All of this, friends, is very consuming, and it can be very conflicting, and it can be a real mess in the context of a marriage, in the context of a family. And friends, that is exactly what we see in this passage, isn't it? I want you to think about this. We have this tension between a king's love for a wicked son a compassion that seems to rule everything, and the tension of a leader's love for his grieving king and for his kingdom, who is also concerned about the need for justice. That really is more in the form of Joab. And so he's ruled by this desire for justice. And throughout this text, you're just seeing David like, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Absalom. And you see Joab on the other side like, yeah, we need to deal with Absalom. <laughs> we, need, we need to kill Absalom. We need, to, we need to put him out of his misery. There's this tension going on. And, and friends, that's really ultimately where this passage is taking. And we're going to see this on display for us, uh, hopefully so that we can recognize that this world is always going to have this tension. But there is a solution. Okay. 
So let's think through then this, this first point, um, just uh, the, this, this basic idea of the whole passage, the consuming and conflicting tension between love and justice. Now before we move into the story, it's worth noting some things about the main characters. First of all, um, unusually, uh, David is not the one who's central, it's Absalom. Absalom is central in the story, meaning that he is the, he is the, the object that, that everyone is kind of moving around. And David is the one who makes him central. Absalom's well-being, his safety, his life, his protection are, in a sense, the eggshells that everyone is walking carefully on in the things that they're doing. Well, everyone except for Job, or Joab, I should say. So Absalom is central. Secondly, Joab is in control as much as any human being can be in control. We understand it's God who's in control, but, but Joab is the one who's the, who's the mover and the shaker and the one who's making decisions and moving things along. So he's that human character that is moving the action. He's getting things done. And then David is passive. Um, he's really kind of in, 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 in the background, just kind of waiting and, and grieving and, and hoping and questioning. And so we, we, we see that the kind of tone where these characters are coming from, it helps us at least to jump into this, this story. Now my goal this morning is not to get into all the details of the story. My goal here this morning is to show in each of these different scenes this tension and for us to consider how this tension is playing out. Okay, so let's just first of all think about the tension of the preparations, the tension of the preparations. And we have, first of all, this gathering uh, of an army. So David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. I love that word, mustered. It's, it's a good, strong word, right? He mustered, right? It's a military word. It's a word that describes the mustering, the gathering, uh, the, 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 the supporting of an army. It's often used in the expression, we, we muster our strength in order to do something. We're just finding all of that energy so we can focus in on the task. So that's what David is doing here with this army. But notice also, it tells us that David sent out this army. And and there's a reflection here um, back to Psalm 3. And Psalm 3, if you notice the title of Psalm 3, it's talking about when David fled from Absalom. And he talks there in Psalm 3, and this is what he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, God's abandoned him. God has left him alone. And now we see David is sending out this army to confront those foes. In other words, the salvation of the Lord is coming. Okay, it's just reminding us that there's this, there's this buildup that's taking place here. So David gathered an army of about 10,000 men, divided into three divisions, each headed by three well-known commanders. You've, you've seen them before. Joab, of course, he is the, the loyal but often headstrong commander uh, who was also the leader of the whole army. There's Abishai, Joab's brother, who was also headstrong, um, but aggressively loyal to David and his kingdom. And then surprisingly, this is, this is Ittai the Gittite, is, is the leader of another uh, whole section of, of the army. And we can only assume that Ittai is over those people that he has brought with him. And, and, and he had 600 Gittites, as well as the Cher- uh, Cherethites and the 
Pelophites, that all is mentioned there in chapter 15 of this passage. So this is all good news, all right? Things are happening now. We have, we have this, this army that is coming out to David, um, but we also have David who is mustering this, this army. Because David had been running from Absalom, if you remember, in a panicked and kind of what disheveled way. But if you remember, Hushai who came and said, hey, I'm loyal to you, was sent back to Jerusalem, and Hushai's counsel was given after Ahithophel's counsel was given. And the news comes back to David, and so David now is ready for what Absalom is ultimately going to do. And we're, we're told um, that, that God basically, or that David sent Hushai to turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But friends, it's here that the tension begins to take shape. So you have this uh, gathering of the army. You also have this protecting of the king. And just notice the love and the loyalty of these men for their king. It says, and the king said to the men, I myself will, uh, will go with you. But the men said, oh, you shall not go out. I mean, if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better for you to send us help from the city. So this is a well-reasoned argument. Absalom's army is not gonna care if any one of us dies. They're after you. So we want you to stay back by the city, and if we need help, bring some soldiers, some of the garrison there at the city, to come and to support us and to join us. This is, this is language of men who are loyal to their king. This is language of, of men who love their king and who are willing to die in the place of their king to protect the king. How does David respond? The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So he listens, he humbles himself, he shows his support for them as they leave the city. It says, so the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and thousands. It must have been quite a picture. And you know, it wasn't too long before that that David stood in another place and watched a whole bunch of people walk in front of him. That was when they were leaving Jerusalem. But now he's watching them leave uh, Mahanaim going into battle. But still, friends, there is a tension in the air. And David is not settled. Something is bothering him. And so he has to speak up. And so now we see this, 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 this longing for Absalom. Notice David's parting words to his commanders. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And notice it says, and all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So basically here's what David is saying. Go out and defeat the enemy, but don't hurt my son Absalom. It's kind of in, in basketball terms. It's like Steve Kerr, coach of the Golden State Warriors, telling his team to beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, but don't guard LeBron James. Putting it in boxing terms, that's like Manny Pacquiao's coach telling him to defeat Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, but make sure you don't lay a hand on him. I mean, so here they are going out to battle. It's like, yeah, we're going to go defeat the enemy, and by the way, don't hurt Absalom. It's like... Are we, Okay, are you Absalom? No? Okay, I can kill you now. I mean, it's, it's chaotic. 
But this is all coming out of David and his compassion for his son. So here's the tension. The king is pining away for his son, not the enemy or the usurper. You get that? He's pining away for his son. He's not being described here as the enemy. He's not being described as the usurper. He's not being described here as the one who is rebellious. He's being described here as the the son of the king. This is not a king speaking, but a father's compassion for a straying son. Absalom is not seen by a king as a traitor or a killer who deserves to die. He is seen as a son whom the father loves and wants to protect. It's just a, it's just a strange scenario in one sense. But it, it's born out of this tension between compassion and love and justice. And friends, this, this tension is often confusing, isn't it? When you're interacting with someone and, 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 and you disagree because you have a tendency to be more on the justice side and they're on the more compassionate side, it can be very confusing to discuss the same facts and yet come to different conclusions. Because you're like, how in the world could you be so compassionate? This person committed a crime. They deserve the time, Right? And then the flip side, it's like, well, I know they committed the crime, but you know, look where they grew up, and look what happened with their parents, and look at all. And, and so you're constantly trying to find reasons why and excuses for. And yet there's the sense in which all of that is part of the package to be considered. So there's this tension, and that's the tension in preparation. Now the tension continues now into, into the battle. And the narrator doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the battle in the big picture, but we we do need to to focus a little bit here on on the progress of the battle generally. The narrator is very straightforward, and he he describes the battle, but it really isn't the most important thing to him. Absalom's death is his focus, yet there's some factors that are worth noting. So verses 6 and 7. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, And the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David, and the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. That's a lot of people to die in battle because of a rebellion. So David's army defeats Absalom's army, but there seems to be language that indicates a divine component to this defeat. Continue reading verse eight. The battle spread over the face of all all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, that's, that's a stunning statement, isn't it? The forest devoured more people than the, uh, on that day than the sword. So if you notice the language there of 2 Samuel 18.8, um, I want you also to notice the language of 2 Samuel 15.23, where David is fleeing from Jerusalem, and notice what it says. It says, and all the land wept aloud, as all the people pass by. That's just, this is his land language. You have to think, okay, there's something going on here that's bigger maybe than just kind of like the narrator telling the story. There's something, there's something theological. There's something driving here that says, this isn't just a battle that's taking place. There's some divine component. Here it is, the land that is no longer weeping but devouring those who are the enemy to the true king of Israel. 
So I take that statement, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword, to mean the, 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 um, the wildness of the forest or the, 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 the ruggedness of the terrain was the means by which God brought these people down. It wasn't a sword. It wasn't an arrow. It was just the terrain that killed most of these men. And you look at the numbers then. That's staggering. Now, the greater context, chapter 17, verse 14, where the narrator speaks, he helps us to see that it is God at work in the battle. It says there, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. It's just a reminder that through the story, there is this providence of God. There is this means by which God is accomplishing his purposes. And what seems to be an unusual circumstance really isn't that unusual because it's God's hand at work. Look at, look at verse 9. In verse 9, it says, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Hmm, he just, just happened to. No, he didn't just happen to. God was at work bringing the judgment on Absalom. This is all part of God's providential plan. Then there's the, the, the life of Absalom specifically, and we're gonna, we're gonna see here a soldier's response and then Joab's response. In one sense, what happened to Absalom is just one example of what was happening all across the land, right? The forest was devouring this army. It's now reached out and caught the usurper. And there's a sense that we, we are left hanging here with Absalom with a, a tension that is asking the question, what is to be done with Absalom's hanging uh, body, hanging in the tree? Now, he's still alive, and it seems like the, the, the picture here is that he, he was you know, going along on his, uh, on his mule, and maybe he looked back a little bit and uh, he got caught in the branches. Now, the idea isn't so much that he got caught by his hair. It's more that he got caught like in a, in a V of a branch in his neck. So much so that he was unconscious, but he was left hanging there. Now, what do you do with that? Well, notice the soldier's response. Verse 10, and certain men saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And notice what Joab says. What? <laughs> you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there on the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man's like, hey, listen, if there was so much gold and weight that I could not even lift it up, I wouldn't have taken it because I heard my king say, deal gently with my son Absalom. But you see, here's this tension again. Here's this tension of, here's Absalom, here's the usurper. He is hanging there. He is, he is there to be killed and yet, my king says, deal gently with him. I, I, I am I'm pretty certain that this man understood Absalom to be a usurper, to be a, a, the, uh, the leader of the rebellion, and therefore deserved justice. But he holds back because the king said, don't do that. We can, we can sympathize with him. That's a, it's a difficult place to be. Now, um, he also understood that Joab wouldn't come to his aid for killing Absalom. If, if it came out, you know, the, 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 if he did kill Absalom, the, the king found out about it, 
Joel would kind of distance himself. That's, that's what is being said here in the text, that he would be standing aloof. He wouldn't be there to his aid. Joel would be kind of like, okay, you know what? It was wrong for this man to do it. Maybe he should be put to death, but I'm glad that he's dead now. I'm glad that Absalom's dead. He's like, you know, this, Job, you're not even going to stand behind me. I know that. I know that about your character. Now, sadly, the tension between mercy and justice here is conflicting. Do I take matters into my own hands and go against the king for the sake of the kingdom? Or do I obey my king and trust that justice will come another way? It's a tension. It's confusing. And there's a conflicting aspect going on the heart of the people in this story. So processing mercy and justice is truly confusing and conflicting. A good, uh, good people will wrestle for days, for months, and even years with the same facts and come to different conclusions. And good people will disagree with one another and vacillate between different opinions based on what they understand. This man didn't wrestle with his choice. He had already determined. He already knew what he was going to do. He says, my king has spoken, so I will not do harm to Absalom. And notice Joab's response. Joab's response here, uh, <laughs> notice verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> he wasn't a happy camper at all. Um, he wants Absalom dead. Now Joab's mind is focusing on reality. He had heard David's orders. It wasn't that he was deaf to them. They were clear. They were public. They were memorable. They were moving, but they were not wise in Joab's eyes. Joab could see David's heart was being, was, uh, was overriding David's responsibility and capacity to serve as king. And this is where compassion sometimes can get away, get in the way of actually exercising justice and being a kind of person that takes on the right responsibility. For, so for Joab, justice and realism demanded that the cancer is surgically cut out and removed and that the rebellion must be dealt with. So now notice, Absalom's brutal death. His brutal death. So he's there hanging by his neck, Joab gets three javelins, thrusts them into um, the heart of Absalom, but notice that doesn't kill him. So the, 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 there's some idea as to maybe what he was doing there is he was actually trying to get him out of the tree with that because the real death blow comes when the, the, the armor bearers gather around him and they start to they basically start to pound on him, right, and they, they kill him. Um, it was a brutal death. But the, the, what happens next is, is really interesting because they're like, okay, what do you do with this body? And, and so they say, well, we're going to dig a pit and, and, and we're going we're to bury Absalom here in the ground and we're going to cover it with stones. And friends, this is, this is the kind of burial that is fit for a sinner. This is the kind of burial that is fit for uh, an enemy of the state. This is the kind of burial um, for someone who is considered cursed. So there, there's definite symbolism going on here in the manner by which they actually buried Absalom. Of course, notice David is not even around here. This is the end of Absalom. He, he was the darling of the Israelite media. With all his good looks and his heavy hair. He was popular with the people at the gate, remember? 
Um, he was also bold and arrogant in his, in his public display on the roof of the palace, um, committing those sexual acts with David's concubines. But his rebellion had come to an end, and his army has been defeated, and his body has been beaten and tossed into a pit, and he's buried under a cursed pile of stones. This is not the legacy that Absalom had hoped for. Now, the narrator wants to drive the point a little bit further, and notice what it says here. It says, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it, it, it is called Absalom's monument to this day. But here, here's, here's just the reality of it. Truly great men and women of this world do not usually raise up monuments to themselves so that people can remember them. Monuments are raised up by the people for people that they respect. Right? Tomorrow is what? Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? And you go to city after city after city and there are roads that are named what? Exactly. Why? Because there is a respect for what he had done for a certain group of people, but also in a broader sense, the nation through the civil rights movement. So they're respecting that. He didn't go around saying, hey, I want a petition that you rename a street for me. That's not what great people do. Great people are memorialized by monuments set up by the people they have affected. Absalom set up a memorial for himself. The problem is that the memorial that he's actually remembered by is the one that Joab and his men actually gave him with these stones. He's a cursed man, he is a rebellious man, he deserves this death. That's the justice, that's the picture of this tension that is going on here. On one hand, you have, you have this compassion, you have this obedience from this man who comes upon Absalom. On the other side, you have justice being exercised by Joab that's saying, my king isn't thinking rightly, I have to take these matters into my own hands. So the tension between love and justice causes confusion, it leaves people conflicted, but the tension continues. And now this tension continues in what I'm calling the tension in the news. Come on, we can do it. All right, tension in the news. And, and this is a long section, and it's all about people running. And quite honestly, I just got tired reading this. I mean, Ahimaaz, if, 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 if you wanna run, go on and run, buddy. And Kushite, if you want to run, that's fine. I think after the battle, I would rather just sit down and have some water and have something to eat. But, but you, have to, you have to get into to Amahaz and, and, and his mentality. Here's what he's thinking. We've won. The battle's over. My king is victorious. Oh, Joab, please, 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 let me go. Let me tell him of the great victory that has been accomplished. Hey, he's going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to sit back in his palace. He's going to be there where the Ark of the Covenant is. Things are going to be restored. This is good news. And Joab says, nah, not today, Amhaz or Ahimaaz. 
one of those guys. Not today. Another day you can do it, but not today. But he just wants so much to tell his king the good news of victory. But instead, Joab sends the Cushite, probably one of his faithful soldiers, and he goes off and he starts running. But Ahimaaz continues just to press Joab and to press Joab and to press Joab. And finally, Joab gives in and says, you know, why do you want to do this? He says, listen, I'm going to do this. He says, all right, run. He probably thought, you know, it's been a a little time since the Cushite's been, he's not going to catch up with them, but if you want to get it out of your system, go for it. But what he doesn't realize is that he takes a different route. Now, probably the Cushite took the most direct route, and there are probably some obstacles along the way. Ahimaaz here stays on the plain, it says, where it's flat, and he's just like booking. And wouldn't you know, the scene shifts from the battlefield then to where David is, and here come these two men. David, we find, is sitting between the two gates. Now, just from a from a ge- geographical perspective. Don't think of the two gates as being, there's a gate over here and there's a gate over here and he's between them this way. Think of it in these terms. You have a, a gate you enter into that then it has between that gate and another gate a whole bunch of areas where those who are trying to storm the city can be defeated. So there's an outer gate and an inner gate. So he's between those two gates. So he can't really see what's going on. So he's dependent then on this watchman to determine what's happening there. In fact, uh, a lot of times where a king would sit would be between those two gates. Okay. So he's sitting where he's supposed to be sitting, but he's just pining away. He wants to hear the news. And so he's, the watchman says, oh, there's someone running. Oh, and if he's running like that, it has to be good news, David thinks. So now he's trying to read the body language to determine what's happening rather than just waiting for the news, right? And he's already convinced himself, oh, this is good news. And then, of course, he says, oh, there's another guy coming. And, of course, Ahimaaz gets there first, which is kind of the shock of the story, isn't it? That he gets there that fast. So he gets there, and he finally is asked by David, all right, how did did it go? And just, just notice how he responds. He says, all is well. You know, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the, the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. It's good news, King David. We won. You won. So glad that I could come and tell you, man, this is such an honor to be the guy who has been given that privilege to do that. And, but David, it's almost like he doesn't even pay attention to that news. What does he do? And the king says, is it well with the young man Absalom? I mean, there's a sense in which David is totally out of touch with what's going on. All he's concerned about, all he's consumed with is his son Absalom. Now Ahimaaz answered, when, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I, I did not know what it was. Now, we know that Ahimaaz knew that Absalom was dead. We want to be careful we don't, we don't mistreat him. But he may not have actually observed how he died. And so he knew there was a commotion. Maybe he knows that he's dead because Joab told him that. 
Um, but he doesn't get into details, and so he says, all right, you go stand over there. Now he wants to find out from the Cushite, and so the Cushite comes, and he says, hey, basically the same thing. I'm giving you good news. You know, may the, and then he says, well, what about Absalom? And he says, well, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David just melts in grief and in mourning. I mean, you have these guys coming saying, justice has been served, and David, all he can think about is his grief for his son. This may be one of the most moving sections or or verses in all of scripture. It's packed with guilt, it's packed with shame, it's packed with sadness and remorse and love And I have to ask myself the question, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, why is David responding like this? And I think what we need to do is we need to root these events in his own sinfulness and the consequence of his sin. And David knows, yes, Absalom is responsible for his own actions, but I am responsible for the consequence which now brings about Absalom's actions. So he is struggling with guilt for the death of his son. It's because of his behavior that his sons have died. Notice what he says, oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh Absalom, my son, my son. This is, this is no light talk. This is deep grieving. I want to be careful here. Be careful not to knock David too much here. He, he may be over the top in the compassion side, but there is a father here who is grieving for his sons and for the fact that he is responsible for paving the way by virtue of his sin. And David's kingdom, plagued with the tension between love and justice, could not find a solution or resolve David was a sinner, and so were his subjects, and Absalom was a rebel, and justice demanded his death, but David's heart longed for compassion and mercy for his son, and he expresses this, what I had died for uh, instead of you. And a son had died when David deserved to be punished, and now another son is dying. And it's, it's just good for us to be reminded of that greater David, who is Jesus, would come and he would die actually instead of us. Jesus would die the death that we deserved and through that death give us life. So there's, there's, just, there's gospel ringing from this passage, friends. Because life is full of this tension. Let's just continue on here with this last scene and then we'll start to drive this home. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but tension in the city. Tension in the city. We've seen so far that that this tension between love and justice has resulted in confusion. With conflict, that would be, why didn't you kill Absalom? Because of of what David had commanded. Just the the, the conflict in what what she should do. And then of course, now as we come to this section, the shame it's just packed with shame. 
Notice the people's shame. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. You can understand that to some degree. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And you got you to ask yourself, what is going through the mind of a loyal servant of David when he is grieving so much for his son rather than being thankful for the men who serve faithfully to defeat the army of his son. And he just continues to, to weep and to mourn for his son. Again, verse four, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. But then Joab shows up, and man, he is bold. Just quickly read this with me. And Joab came into the house of the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Friends, when you go to the king, you gotta be careful what you say. But Joab here is bold. And there's a sense in which he, he knows that David needs a little bit of a, um, you guys know who the, 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 the um, Cheetos Cheetah is? You guys know what I'm talking about? And he kind of goes, yeah, 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 that whole thing, right? The point is, here, Joab knows that David needs that, that kind of shake in the head. He needs to be slapped silly to wake up from, from his, his consumed self-centered grief because it's affecting the world around him. It's affecting his people. It's affecting those people who have been loyal to him. And notice what he says, for you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were, were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not, not a man will stay with you this, this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth till now. I mean, those are bold words. But David needs to be woken up. Yes, he's mourning, but that doesn't take his responsibility away from being king. And then what we read next is David's resolve, verse eight. And the king arose and took a seat at the gate and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in his gate. Now, um, there's some things that we, we wanna kind of meander with here that I think flow out of this, and this is all tension, we've seen it on both sides, there's compassion, mercy, and love, and there's, there's this justice that, that, that just seem to be fighting each other. And friends, life is full of this consuming and conflicting tension between love and justice, and it appears that it will never, ever end. How can love and justice ever live in harmony? Well, friends, there will always be people who tend toward justice, and the results can be devastating. I mean, the, the negative side of those who are just justice-focused is there can be a lack of compassion. There can be a lack of consideration, be a lack of thinking, justice can be applied to the wrong person. 
justice misapplied because the motive or the cause or the causes of duress are not even considered. So families are torn apart. The innocent are sent to suffer in jail. Bitterness sets in to discourage society. That's what happens when justice is exercised without any fashioning compassion. Well, let's turn the flip side. There'll always be people who tend toward love, compassion, and mercy, and the results can also be devastating. Those offended don't feel protected. Crime increases due to weak sentencing. Now, if you're, if you're not exercising the rule of law, crime's gonna increase, because people say, you know what? Nah, it's not gonna be that big of a deal. I'll just get a slap on the hand. The rule of law is diminished because it is regarded as simply words on a page rather than teeth that will bite. And so we're, we're tormented, friends, by the appearance and the reality of abuses of compassion and the cold-heartedness of justice. So both are ditches that we can fall into in an abusive way and can cause great damage. And that tension, friends, will continue until the Lord returns and fully establishes his kingdom on the earth. A kingdom ruled and reasoned by man apart from God will always continue to live with the tension between love, compassion, and mercy over against justice. It just will always be the case. But friends, here's the the beauty of it all. The only place where the tension of mercy and justice is satisfied is in the gospel. It's only at the cross where the tension of justice and tension of mercy meet and find resolve. So when we go to the Bible, we see that God loves us so much that he Uh, that he made Calvary possible. He made the cross possible. He made the gospel possible. But he's also one who hates sin so much that he makes Calvary or the gospel or the cross necessary. God's determination to punish sin and desire to display his loving mercy are two complementary truths. Love demands justice. Justice demands Love. And at the cross, both the goodness of God and the severity of God are on display. So while justice and mercy seem like two extremes on the spectrum of God's character, we see them meet, embrace, and kiss at the cross. Jesus, the perfect, sinless lamb, takes on the penalty of our sin to satisfy God's justice against sin. Jesus didn't deserve to endure the justice of God, yet he did so that we, guilty sinners, could receive what we don't deserve, the mercy of God. And this is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is such a great verse. For our sake he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God poured out his wrath on Jesus for sin, although he knew no sin. 
so that by virtue of Jesus being that sacrifice, we then could be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus, and, and become the righteousness of God. Now, this is an old illustration, but it may be helpful in just tying all this, people together, all this stuff together. There's, the story is basically of two, two, two men who grew up together in high school, and then they went their separate ways. One grew up to be a judge. The other one grew up and got involved in a criminal lifestyle. And one day, the judge is presiding over the court, and he sees his friend come into the courtroom as the one who then is being tried. And so this judge had compassion on his friend and yet had a responsibility for being a judge and exercising justice. How was he gonna get out of this kind of conundrum, this difficulty, what would he do? So he was a judge, and so he had to be just. He couldn't simply let the man off, and he wanted to be merciful because he loved his friend, so this is what he did. He fined him the correct penalty for the offense. That was justice. In other words, he gave him the full justice that he deserved. But then he got out of his bench and walked down to where his friend was, pulled out his checkbook, and he wrote out the amount to pay for that justice being exercised and given. Now friends, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration that falls short of the reality, but it gives this idea that this judge could take on two different roles. Now I want us to think a little bit further about this by turning to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. And notice verse 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this is all cross work. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now notice, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in other words, his patience, he had passed over former sins. In other words, God, over time, passed over former sins. He instituted the, the sacrificial system. Every time a sacrifice was given, propitiation, a covering, it was a temporary covering, was, was brought to bear. But that was all God being patient for Ultimately, that sacrifice once for all being a reality. And that was Christ being that lamb on the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what happens at the cross is that God exercises justice. He pours out his wrath on his son, he is that sacrifice once for all. He's our sacrifice. But that's not the whole story. Not only does God do that with his son, but he also exercises this justifying. In other words, he, by virtue of his son's death, now provides a way of reconciliation. He brings this compassion component and says, yes, justice has to be meted out. 
But love also flows from the cross and provides reconciliation, restoration, justification for those who will believe. Now friends, this is the only place where justice and mercy come together and work together and are reconciled and are satisfied. God is just, he must deal with sin. God is the justifier, he declares us righteous. My friends, this is the gospel. And the point here is this, life is gonna continue for all of us to be full of this tension between love and justice. And you're gonna have arguments with people, discussions with people, who are struggling with you because of your bent toward that. And it's gonna be an ongoing thing. But what we need is we need to understand then the gospel that that God did for us through his son, not only as a means of bringing those two things together at the cross and therefore providing salvation, but also as the fuel for us to live for him. And so here I want us to finish up with three, three thoughts that I think will be helpful for us. Because this gospel changes how we think and how we behave. Your tendency, and hear this, your tendency toward justice or your tendency toward compassion or, or mercy may in actual fact not be a godly attribute, but may actually in fact be an, a, 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 an evidence of your flesh. You can say, we need justice. And that may not be gospel speaking. That actually may be your flesh speaking. Or we need compassion. And that actually may not be the gospel speaking. That actually may be your flesh speaking. And so what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves that the gospel fashions how we think and fashions how we behave. And so what we need is is for the gospel to be driving our thoughts and driving our behavior. So let me press press in on three levels. Number one, we need a gospel-driven humility. A gospel-driven humility, and by this, what I'm saying is that we need to be able to honestly look at ourselves and consider whether or not our bent toward justice or mercy is actually an aspect of our flesh or is actually what the gospel is shaping. We all probably tend one way or the other, right? I mean, I could do a show of hands, how many of you, you know, tend toward justice, how many of you tend toward you know, mercy? We all tend to do that, and we need to recognize that and be humble enough to say that there is a sinful component there that we need the gospel to fashion. We may not even realize that that is an area of sin in our lives. Secondly, we need a gospel-driven dependence. And I wanna just pull out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We know this, but I, I think this, this applies here. I think this draws it in. It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, right? Well, the, 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 the opposite then is you trust in the Lord, but, but lean on his understanding. We ought to be leaning into him We ought to be depending on him. So the question for us here is this. Are we leaning on our own understanding or are we leaning or depending on the understanding that comes from God? We must, friends, we must be people who trust God with justice and mercy. We must be people who don't lean on our own understanding when it comes to justice and mercy. And we must be people who are looking for God's hand at work 
with justice and mercy. Friends, the fact that you are a child of the king is because you have been the recipient of both justice and mercy. And that, that gospel doesn't stop there, it continues on and is an aspect of how we think, how we behave. And so we need to depend on God in the midst of all that. So we don't just act out of our flesh, we come to God in prayer, bathed by the Holy Spirit through his word, to be shaped by him and to depend on him. Now here's a, here's a final one, it's gonna take us to Micah 6, 8 which gives us some practical guidance, but we need a gospel-driven balance. A gospel-driven balance. Here's what Micah 6, 8 says, and you've heard it before. It's a concluding statement in the argument. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? He requires that you do justice. You do justice that you love kindness, or that's mercy or compassion, and that you walk humbly with your God. Now I I realize I'm pulling a verse, we haven't studied the context there, but just understand that the, the point here is that there is this aspect where we can be people who are just and we can be people who are also merciful, but how do we do all of that? As we're walking humbly with our God. And so friends, this, this just it means that if we're gonna be people who are trying to balance and walk through this life with a careful thought about mercy and justice, we have to do that by be pe- being people of the word. We have to be people who are fashioned and shaped by God's truth. And it doesn't mean we throw justice out, it doesn't mean we throw mercy out, but it means we humbly look at each situation and say, let us pray, let us lean on God, let us, let us immerse ourselves to think in a way that God wants us to think because it's fashioned by his gospel. Friends, the gospel isn't just for salvation. The gospel's for living. The gospel is for working out our our walk with Christ, with fear and trembling. And this is an area that we struggle because so often we dig our heels in, whether it's justice or mercy. Aren't you glad God didn't? Well, he did. He satisfied it, though, at the cross where they came together and were satisfied by the death of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, help us today. Your, your grace is truly amazing. We live in a world that is imperfect. There's things that happen and our, our flesh rises up and we wanna just hold on to justice or we wanna be compassionate and there's all this kind of stuff, Lord, that just toils at us. And Lord, there's a sense in which you want us rather than to simply respond in our flesh thinking that it is the fruit of the gospel, to step back and to be humble before you and to be fashioned and shaped by your word, bathed in prayer, depending on you so that we can think clearly and be the kind of people you've called us to be. Lord, we've seen in David's life 
just the, the, the turmoil that being so consumed with compassion brings. And we've seen in Joab's life, in this particular point, how dangerous it is to simply uh, to, to, to act on justice when it is in disobedience. Being a vigilante, so to speak. Lord, help us just to, to, to draw from all of this just the, an understanding of the fact that you are the master of justice and mercy. And Lord, to learn to be more like you. To live our lives, Lord, with that, that tension, fashion, and shape by your gospel. Lord, help us today. We ask in your precious name, amen.